I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank God for David Attenborough with Ben Elwood. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Thank God for David Attenborough. My name is Ben Elwood, and my guest today is Dr. Lindsay Gray from Sydney University. Lindsay and I had an awesome conversation about trees, liverworts, fungi, bugs, and consciousness as we sat down together to watch Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth, The First Forests. As the continents drifted over the globe and collided, new mountain ranges were built up and in their turn, worn down. And throughout this immensity of time, the land remained sterile. Nowhere was there even the smallest of animals or the tiniest speck of green. until the first life, a few patches of green, appeared on the land, and colour came to the earth. You know, this, this, this human thing that's coming up a lot at the moment of, you know, oh, wouldn't it be great to communicate with aliens? And it's like, well, until we figured out how to communicate with blue whales or the mycelium or anything that actually exists here... What makes you think that we would have any interest in communicating with something from a different galaxy that probably doesn't even look like anything we could even compute? Do you know what that sounds like a manifestation of? Mm. So often I encounter people who just, it's like they're this bottomless cup, like they can just add more and more projects to their plate Mm. and they don't get stressed by it and they just seem to be able to, yep, I'm going to get involved in that and I'll do that and don't worry, I'll I'll chair that. And it's Mm. like, how do you, I know for a fact that you don't have the time to do all that stuff, but they take it on. Mm. So. So maybe that is a deep part of human nature as well, like this desire to take on infinite numbers of projects and Mm -hmm. they don't – there's no self-limiting regulator there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it's like this lack of, oh, well, hang on, until I've finished my project, which is understanding how ants communicate, I shouldn't start a new project over here, which is communicating with aliens. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I learned early on that I – too much is – a recipe for unhappiness for me. Hello, I am Dr. Lindsay Gray, and I am a biologist with a particular passion for invertebrates, plants, and birds. I'm a penguin keeper and also a research affiliate at Sydney Uni. Well, yeah, and also kind of m- focusing in on the things that you're actually passionate about and trying to, you know, I, the, 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 the thing that's blown my mind talking to all of you folks for this thing is, you know, I, I was kind of very intimidated by when I was first researching names like, oh, doctor and PhD and professor and all this stuff. And everyone's been the most humble person 
much more humble than comedians. When I oh oh oh, I have an observation because about people it. could be most people are willing to admit. Oh, I I only know I I know a lot, but I know a lot about well, this very mate, small window. Ha, when you publish in the scientific literature, you get torn to shreds. <laughs> so we are damaged. You know, like you go through. You do sound like comedians. Oh well, we're so damaged. <laughs> Uh, yeah, peer review is brutal. Yeah. It's a blood fight. Yeah. Blood fight? Blood sport. Blood sport. Mm. Yeah. So you end up like, oh, no, I wouldn't want to over. I don't want to. I mean, yeah, correct. Right. But when I do a Myers Briggs test thing, I yeah. don't come out high on humility. Don't worry. No, no, I don't. And I, I doubt some of the others you've interviewed would either. But we'd like to project a false humility. No, I'm, I'm oh, the same. Oh, maybe it's not false. But I do want to make this observation now yeah. that you've given me a mic. I'm yeah. going to say it. Do it. So I listen to the radio a lot. I'm a radio devotee. Mm. I really like radio. Mm. Now, you put a, an artist on the radio. Yeah. You put a film director, you put an actor on the radio and they will talk about themselves mm-hmm. like they're some god, musicians as well. Mm-hmm. For a, mm. Scientists want to talk about stuff. Yes. You know, like I'd like to talk about myself but not right now. Yeah. It's embarrassing. <laughs> but, yeah, what is that? Like at what, what when, you're, when you're trained as an arts professional, yeah. at what stage is it celebra- is this ego thing? Like what? I Where? think when you're an artist, when you're an artist, you're, you're primarily um, spruiking your own product. And so if you're a director, it, you have to talk about how great you are because oh. your film is the byproduct of your genius. Oh, I think that's what it is. Okay. You know, I mean, co- comedians are similar. Okay. Comedians are conversely. Yeah, comedians. What are they? Well, they're the most. They're the best and also the most insufferable people. It's like, <laughs> it's like a messianic complex. Tempered by profound self-loathing, <laughs> like which is similar. You know, you just kind of describe that with the scientists as well. Yeah, the peer review. Yeah, yeah. like uh, there, there, there is a there is a innate sense of confidence because you can do something that most people consider terrifying, but there's also something broken in you that you need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that you need, that you need to walk out in front of a room full of strangers and like, do you like me? Am I good? Yeah. Am I real? I recognised early on because I've done a lot of presenting to groups like tours or presenting to kids, teaching mm. them about nature. Mm. And at some stage I realised it was more, I mean, sure, I've got that mantra about I'm going to help people to love the environment mm-hmm. and I'm going to make them vote nicely and be good environmental mm. stewards, but... It, it's mostly about me and oh, what yeah. I enjoy doing with my time. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I think there is something to be said for <laughs> selfish altruism, if you know what I mean, not being kind of the martyr dying on the cross for every good thing that yeah, you do. Yeah, it's good to recognise that of course. it's for and- your own enjoyment that you're doing things. But contributing to a societal good is nice. I mean, you, thank God you're a person who feels good contributing. Yeah. As opposed to what tends to be the trend of, you know. Here you go again. I'm I ready. Know. What? Sorry. Oh, it's, it's my anti-humanity streak. It's awful. It's I got strong. A, I got a real, yeah, it's, it is. Well, I mean, it has been harboured uh, and fostered by not interacting with people for some time. Oh, no, I've always been like this. <laughs> what is your opinion of David? Look, I think David is fantastic for engaging young minds, mm-hmm. um, whether that's like young and with respect to new to these ideas yep. or literally young. Yeah. Um, the drama, uh, yep. his, yeah, the, the you know, polished boy look of him. <laughs> I think he has 
built a great narrative mm-hmm. around some stunning footage. Yeah. Which for 1979 is yeah. extraordinary to yeah, get yeah. that macro stuff that we're going to enjoy soon. Definitely. Um, but I think now there would be far less conjecture. There's a lot of conjecture in here yep. and extrapolation of, yep. you know, these are the fossils that we have, therefore that's how things evolved. Yeah. But you know, in the light of molecular biology, we now know that a lot of what he's saying is is pure. Well, I mean, it's probably along the lines, yeah. but it's it is conjecture. So, it, and he would flag that now. He would say, "We think," whereas he presents it almost as fact throughout this. So, at this point in his life, he was in charge of the Natural History Unit. No, he was so, it. And yeah. What so, was his training? You're a fan. So did he he, do, he did English at at Oxford or something. Didn't yeah. He? No. So he was a big nature guy. As a very young man, he used to go and hunt for fossils in the forest and all that. And then, did you ever see ZooQuest? It's him in his 20s being sent off to Madagascar and Borneo and stuff. I'm familiar with the Madagascar episode and he finds the elephant bird eggshells. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's very kind of like, you know white explorer going out into the deep, dark hearts of the wild and uh, he's catching animals for the London Zoo. And to his credit, he, you know, he has since come out and gone, that was not cool. Mm. You know, oh, we did. I mean, yeah. Did he actually catch things? Yeah, there's some incredible oh. footage of him. You know, running through the jungle, <laughs> jumping onto an anteater, um, push, putting stuff in cages. You know, he had a little squirrel monkey on his shoulder. Like, it, it's that real kind of last gasp of a life that a, a, a version of me that didn't know as much about nature in the world would very much envy. You know, he spending six months in Madagascar looking for birds and orangutans and he makes friends with a chimpanzee and like, it's a, it's a beautiful life. Um, and so he spent a lot of his twenties doing that. And then he became the comptroller or the overseer of the whole BBC. And so he approved, um, Monty Python and greenlit all this other stuff. And then they offered him the entire management of BBC or to make life on earth. And he rang up his brother, Richard Attenborough, and said, what should I do? He said, I'm behind a desk. There's no way in which I'm going to sit. And I said, you'll be a bloody fool if you accepted it. You should go on doing what you're marvellous at and what gives you pleasure. Sitting in an office was not his scene. Uh, his scene is out somewhere in those ridiculous trousers that are likely to fall off at any moment or up to his eyes and knees and God knows what. That's Dave's world. And so he ditched it all. And I mean, he's in his, I think, late 40s in this. So this is a real late in life decision to make life on earth. So all of the the David that the world thinks of all happened, you know, basically in the second half of his life. Okay, right. You know, and, and from my perspective, thank God, there's no artist or musician or anyone that's kind of informed my life as much as he has. I do think that watching these documentaries as a child on Sunday nights on the ABC, Richard Moorcroft would introduce mm. these sorts of documentaries and they had a big impact on the way I felt about the world around us. Oh, 100%. 100%. (laughs) I don't know who I would be without those experiences. Okay. Especially as an urban kid Mm. who did not have access to nature other than the birds in the backyard or whatever, to be exposed to this huge swathe of life and experiences. Yeah, it invites the young explorer to imagine one day you'll go there. I think for me it was also – a huge lesson in empathy and shared experience. I think up until those experiences of watching this stuff, it never occurred to me that the life of 
an elephant or a shrew or a naked mole rat could be analogous to my life at all. And then suddenly seeing these things, you know, I remember watching um, antelope smearing their horns in mud before the mating season. And well, how's that different from makeup, you know, or just all these mating rituals that, you know, like seeing that that's what happens in the bar on a Saturday night, just on and on and on. Um, And obviously there's anthropomorphization involved a little bit, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized, I don't know if it is anthropomorphization. I think it is the recognition of something innate. Yeah. Like that shared history. Yeah. And I think that's what people are recognizing. They're not necessarily projecting a human quality onto the animal. They're recognizing an animal quality within themselves. Yeah. That's a nice way of framing it. Does it help you relate to plants knowing they have motile sperm? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) The first plants were simple algae. Slowly they spread over the lake beaches and the sand spits, pioneers of the great revolution that was to lead to the greening of the earth. So from what we know now, from where and how did plants first evolve? Well, he presents it very nicely. So green algae. The coleochaetae. No, but so you need you need to dumb it right down for me because I don't like what would oh, it, like. Oh, so in the ocean, yeah. there are there's seaweed. Yeah, and we're seeing it now. David yeah. is holding up some green filamentous yeah. algae, <laughs> and there's also red seaweed and brown seaweed. Yeah. So we call it algae, mm-hmm. and the green algae. Yeah. they evolved into the land plants. So green algae was kind of uh, coalescing in the ocean and then crept onto land much like animals would millions of years later? um, mm, We don't know what the first land plant, land plant, was. I never know. Long A, short A. From New South Wales, it's very confusing. But... I think, you know, you've invited me here, I think it was was probably in the intertidal zone that these things first crept onto land. So, you know about the intertidal zone, Ben? No, please tell me. The intertidal zone is the seashore basically Uh where the tide comes in and out ebbs and flows. So think of your rock pool at North Bondi. Mm -hmm. One moment it's high tide full of fully saline seawater, very salty, and you've got to cope with living in a brine basically. Mm -hmm. And then hang on, the tide goes out, bit of evaporation. Gosh, it's even saltier. Oh, and now a torrential downpour and the thing is now mostly freshwater. This is our rock pool. And then it might dry out entirely Mm -hmm. or you weren't in the pool, you were to the side of the pool on Mm. the rock Mm. and you've been baking in the sun with no water on you. So there's this lovely environment in which um, you would be forced to adapt. You know, it's a stressful environment. A lot of animals and plants will evolve rapidly when they're in stress, they're stressed. And so would that, would those kind of extreme changes in environment, would that lend itself to how quickly plants would have evolved into ferns and then on and on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's not think about the time frame at this point, but yeah, whoever persisted in that stressful environment was hardy and robust and went on to continue to live maybe a little bit higher up the shoreline and then maybe a little bit higher in a multi-million dollar mansion at North Bondi. (laughs) And now it's up on the golf course and it doesn't need the ocean at all. Okay. Mm, but ferns come much later than the, so, these very early land plants, which were analogous to or similar to what we now know as a liverwort. Robbed of the support of water, the first land plants had to remain lowly, like liverworts or mosses. 
You're somewhat of an expert in liverworts, right? No, no, no. My my partner is. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> he is, a, yeah, world-renowned. Really? He should be here. I said, do you want to come instead of me? He's like, no. <laughs> no. Is he as chatty as you? No. no. Yeah, <laughs> do you think a liverwort expert is going to be chatty? <laughs> what honestly? is a liverwort? Well, you should know. Look. No, I don't think. Haven't you watched I mean, he, this? Yeah, I have. But he just kind of goes, well, this is a liverwort and it opens <laughs> up and blah, blah. Like, what, like, but what, what, like. It's a truly, I mean, it's a truly appalling name, liverwort. Yeah. What, but what, like, what, how is, obviously it's a plant. It's but a primitive is... plant. The early land plants that still exist, you know, yeah. like they, they just happened to evolve first, yep. include the liverworts, mm-hmm. the mosses, yeah. and the hornworts. <laughs> I'm surprised David didn't talk about the hornworts. The hornworts. Here we have the hornwort. <laughs> anyway, the liverworts, a non-vascular plant. When you're saying they're non-vascular, yes. like what, what are they? What are they doing? They're they're just absorbing water, and that's it. Yeah. And then yeah. they die if it's too dry. Uh, they actually go into stasis a lot of them and can right. persist for a very long time, almost fully dry, similar to huh. what algae do in the intertidal zone. Like we've got mosses, for example, that live in the desert. Really? Yeah. As long as they're hydrated periodically, uh-huh. they can grow and have sex. That's the part that, I mean, because there is a part in this where he starts talking about plant sperm yeah. and all the rest. That yeah. is. Trippy. Yeah, that's really trippy. We get to see it too, which I don't need to see. <laughs> the prude is there. It's too, too confronting watching oh, algae, algae sperm. Mm. But so. Liverwort. Liverwort sperm. There is a little bit too much um, sexual drama and stuff in here for me. Like I get uncomfortable. <laughs> Things start to clench when David gets into all of that. I think he's like he's working so hard on being neutral when he's discussing these things that it it, it highlights how uncomfortable they are. I'd much really? rather like a little, you know, look at these bugs they're going for. <laughs> I have watched this. I have watched this and I thought we should tally how many times, you know, the milky fluid. Oh, yeah. The, the <laughs> right. genital opening. And it's as though he's attempting to sound so neutral mm. that he becomes the opposite. It's like... <laughs> Are you sure you're not projecting? No. <laughs> Wriggling sperm are released and swim in the film of water that covers the plant. When they're ripe and conditions sufficiently wet, fertilisation begins. The sperm appears as a milky fluid. The female releases a special chemical that attracts the sperm. Uh, it's wet. The capsules burst. Sex sperm attracts pepper pot spores, tantalising eggs. Budding, eventually they reach the female organs. They don't even need to suck. I think that later in his career he gets a little bit more saucy. I think because oh, this is this oh is my 19... gosh, really? I haven't yeah. watched recent stuff. Oh, definitely. Because <laughs> this is 1978. This is a weird one because he's. I think he's not yet David Attenborough. Mm, I mm. think he's still English broadcaster right. presenter. Yeah. And I think after this series is when he really comes Mega into famous. his own as David. Uh, but I think if you watch the more recent ones, there's some like cheeky. Oh. Little lines here. I think this is this came out in the seventies when um, the Ascent of Man and Civilization, two big landmark series about ooh, the wonder of humanity, came out. And this was his attempt to go, "Hey, natural history is just as probably more amazing." And so I think he's kind of trying to, you know, be that guy. But later on, there's some definite. You should watch The Secret Life of Plants. Okay. There's some saucy stuff I'm in that. I'm not sure I'd like that kind of thing. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff I, I must be a prude. <laughs> like I'm – obviously I'm a complete Luddite with this stuff. So plants didn't invent sex, did they? Or at least uh, sperm and egg sex. Mm, um, oh, that's a terrible sound to be making. <laughs> mm, 
It's not a sexual sound at all. It's a, oh, um, never thought about that, Ben. Gosh, what a great mind you have. No, but I feel like it's a dumb question. No, I think that the the algae, like, that aren't as complex as those multicellular algae, mm. the unicellular stuff, protista, they mate. I, yeah, they, Back, they, protista and bacteria in these. I think they have, they do it. Look, I'm often <laughs> wrong on the public record, but, yeah, I'm pretty sure they spawn. Right. But can you do it at bookend in case we're completely wrong? And yes. you can like say when, when, when we go back to recording. the show, I'll do a quick Google. Did plants invent sex? I don't think they did. I don't think they did either. No. So you're saying it's it's the product of a great mind. It's the product of a mind that doesn't know what he's talking about, I think. David? Me. Oh. <laughs> You've also studied bugs or flies. Is this correct? Uh, I did entomology, you know, as an undergrad. Yeah. And I, you know, I have a love of bugs. I love bugs too. Mm, yeah. Mm. So does David. <laughs> Flies experience time differently to us? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question. So, oh, and I was loath to say that. I hate it when people say that. was an interesting question. <laughs> so recently I've tinkered around with the slow-mo on my iPhone and it's very interesting to slow down children mm. and guinea pigs and watch it back and listen back on the slow-mo video. And it's as though this tiny, small thing is suddenly the same as us. Like it's, yeah. it's like, oh, now the kid sounds like an adult or now the kid's <laughs> moving like an adult. So I don't know. I think possibly smaller things exist. Like they're slowed, their time experience of time is slowed down relative to ours so they yeah. can do what they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, those tiny little beating hearts that tiny birds have and, yeah, I don't know how else they do what they do. No, because I've thought about that. We when you- couldn't. If you gave me halters and a pair of wings and said, off you go, I'd just crash into the wall. <laughs> so, no, I, I don't know. Again, yeah. I don't know, but I would suspect that they do experience time differently. That's what I th- uh, yeah, I've, I've, because, you know, Somehow. when you when you go to swat a fly, yeah, is it that head. its reflexes so quick or yeah. is it looking We're up at your hand going? Yeah, I think it is, yeah. Like, oh, I've got all the time I in the world. I don't know, though, but I think that we need an insect neuroscientist. Because I, I believe birds do that, or at least pigeons, that their brains are taking whatever more frames a second oh. than we do, which is why when a car is coming towards a pigeon, it, it seems to be very leisurely and getting out of the way because <laughs> it's like the same as us seeing a train a kilometre away. Like, right. oh, it's fine. i got yeah. I got heaps of time. Yeah, I know that, that like animals use flicker-fusion to evade cumbersome predators like us. Okay. Um, what's, wait, what's flicker-fusion? Yeah, I'm going to not be able to explain it very well, but, yeah, the frames per second concept. Right. Yes. <laughs> Full stop. Flick fusion. Flick fusion. The first plants colonised the moist places of the world and green carpets bordered the lakes and rivers. Into these miniature jungles came the first land animals. Millipedes, then as now, were vegetarians and they must have found plenty to eat among the mosses and liverworts. The biggest of them today are only a few inches long, but many of the ancient forms that pioneered life on land grew very much larger. One, indeed, was as long as a cow. I think he's showing us the cuticle at the moment. What is the cuticle? Mm, So this is a very interesting skin-like exoskeleton Mm -hmm. of the arthropods. 
that includes the, a lot of the familiar invertebrates that we have living on land. He's kind of suggesting that there's a straight line between, you know, the kind of crustacean-like bugs, scorpions, arachnids mm, and that mm, kind of stuff, mm. coming out of the ocean and then eventually evolving into beetles and all the rest. Well, no, but that is kind of what David suggests in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of right. Yeah. So it, it relatively recently yeah. and highly excitingly... <laughs> We have discovered through DNA analysis and a few other things that all of the insects and the crustaceans mm. are actually sort of one and the same thing, pancrustacea. Really? Yes. It's wow. Not the um, other arthropod lineages, though. Let's yeah. talk about them in a moment. Yeah, sure, sure, Let's sure. get to them in a moment. <laughs> Can't believe we're doing this. No, I, you know, I don't get to do this. Thank you, Ben. It's okay. Thank oh, you. Mm, <laughs> You're the I, one that drove two hours to get here. My soul is nourished. Um, anyway, the pancrustacea, they share a common ancestor. We're pretty sure. We, <laughs> scientists. Um, so all of the myriapodes, the millipedes, the centipedes, all the insects and their allies, like uh-huh. springtails and stuff that you see in compost, yep. and the crustaceans, are all just one big happy family wow. in inverted commas. And certainly the crustaceans evolved in the ocean. So they probably were the first fellows and felices to come to land. And then he talks about a delightful arachnids. So these are another phylum of invertebrates that possess the same sort of exoskeleton. Mm-hmm. They are not as closely related to each other as the insects, the myriapods, the centipedes and stuff, and the crustaceans. So the the spiders, the scorpions, which we get to see doing it, of course, um, they are all in their own group, <laughs> the Calicerata, with ticks and stuff. You're so Australian getting all prudish about <laughs> About scorpions having sex. I know. What is my personality? I don't know. Oh, now we're seeing the the millipedes doing it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. But there's so much fit in this film. It's the first forest. I thought, oh, fabulous plants. And it's just wall to wall. What's this podcast rated? It's And look, here we are. We're seeing this bulging thing coming out of the side (laughs) of the millipede. Have you ever seen how slugs have sex? Unfortunately, oh, I, I, I think have. it's beautiful. Oh, you're really into it. Okay. Oh, no, I just think it's. I, I think it's like you it, are more like... open-minded than I am. <laughs> so, for completeness, David mm. left out two kind of linking groups of animals, which represent what the first invertebrates of land animals probably looked more like, and they are the tardigrades and the onychophrons. Aren't tardigrades microscopic? Little... They're very small, so very hard to get good footage yeah, of in 1979. Wow. And yep. that still to this day live in mosses and liverworts and hornwort carpets. We call it a carpet. <laughs> Wait, did I mishear you? Did you say that tardigrades are related to crustaceans? No, no. They are. Well, they are, yeah. Uh, That's I've got crazy. a photograph of the uh, invertebrate family tree, the most recent one. But anyway. Wow. They probably share a common The little ancestor. microscopic guys that can survive in radioactive waste and the vacuum of space Water and all that bears. kind of stuff. Water yeah. bears. There's a song about them. I'd oh, rather, they're so beautiful. Do you know the song? I don't know the song. I'd rather be a water bear. Something like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it was sung by the same people that sang the sung, sang the song about the sun as a ball of incandescent gas. Oh, um, they might be giants. Yeah, I think they, right. they have a water bear song. There's a beautiful footage. I think Neil deGrasse Tyson... Uh, posited that this footage of um, water bears hugging. I mean, they're probably not hugging. They're probably just whatever, smacking up against each other. Why not hug? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean that. 
How? We all share. So all metazoans, animals, yeah. highly likely we all have a common ancestor. Why wouldn't they enjoy a hug? Well, that's, yeah, that, and that's a, that's a question. What, like when you talk about consciousness across the board, do you think that, because I mean, there's been, there's been tests showing that yeast seek pleasure or at least have pleasure receptors, pleasure genes, and that they have a, um, that there's a drive towards pleasure. Do you think that, that that is across the board in all animals? Probably, because we have the same sort of chemicals in us, the, yeah. the chemicals that drive us and yeah. drive our pleasure-seeking behaviour and satisfaction and so on, um, they're highly conserved. Mm. So going back in time and the evolution of creatures, mm. we have been using the same chemicals to do this stuff yep. for apparently for a very long time. Right. There's a lot we share. Yeah, I think that's that's the um, I think that's the schism that people have with nature or with other animals. It's that kind of denial of a shared experience. There's this idea that it looks so different and everything's so alien. So how could I have any kind of um, feeling of connection or brotherhood or whatever you want to call it with something that is so different from me? But I think that that you know when you kind of break it down of like essentially all of life wants to feel safe and just wants to kind of go about its. Yeah. business without being killed or stepped on. Mm -hmm. It's actually not that hard to empathise. No. Well, not for us. I mean. Yeah. yeah. Well, not for us. Yeah, the not for us. Ones. We like <laughs> from the inner west. Um, yes. So if we want to talk about shared experience and the evolution of animals, mm. even though I thought this was a plant podcast, there's a type of science which was very popular pre-molecular biology. Mm. So it's a very traditional method of studying evolution, evolutionary development, evo-devo. So in evo-devo, you look back at um, embryology, so what happens at the earliest stages of a creature's life, mm. and you compare that across all the known creatures and you look for similarities. And we now know with confidence due to... Um, verification through molecular means, DNA means and other markers, that we, chordata, the um, vertebrates and our allies, we are more closely related to echinoderms than to mo mollusks. I hope I get that right. What's an echinoderm? Um, an echinoderm is a sea star, a starfish, a holothurian, like a sea cucumber. Right. Now, we know that because when you look at the very early stages of embryo mm. life, like at the earliest moments that yeah. you are developing, yeah. we develop our anus first. And then our mouth. Right. <laughs> so does a sea star. Really? Really? Yeah. So we are deuterous domes or deuterous. Are we essentially just a kind of a a, a, a digestive tract surrounded by? Early a body? on, we are. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Mm. And then we, you know, the DNA instructs the tissues located in different parts of the animal's body yep. to do different things. Yeah. Right. Differentiation. So is it? Would it? It's. It, it's. Would it be correct or? adjacent correct, to think of us as kind of a more quote-unquote sophisticated version of? No, no, no. So they're like – sorry to no, no, no. You. No, 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 no. no. I, I, please. 
I'm a- I'm very anti-human, so to be told that is oh, good. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah I'm not. I'm pretty not a sure fan. it's the mollusks um, are on their own. Uh, again, I should have checked this before I came here. But um, I think the arthropods. So all the animals that shed their skins mm. as they grow throughout life, the ecdiosomes or something, they are um, pro. They they develop their anus second. Okay, and then uh, they're, they're separated from us. Um, Along with the echinoderms. Okay. Um, and then the mollusks, I think they're on their own. I think they develop their anus second, but they don't molt, so, you know, it's all very confusing. Okay. But, yes, so <laughs> next time you're at the beach and you see a sea urchin or a sea cucumber and and then you see a fly, you're like, right, I'm in with my homeboy or girl or, uh, mm, yep. yeah, yep. the uh, urchin, yep. not I'm not as not close to – yeah, anyway, whatever. Yeah, right. You can, I want I mean, you to relate. I you, want you to feel related. I, to I, I feel related to all of it and I actually feel – like I understand the people who blanch against, you know, oh, don't tell me that I came from a sea cucumber or a monkey or whatever. <laughs> well, did it, they did it. It's just our sister lineage. Just, yeah, but, but, but it's that, that that kind of like that 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 rejection of, you know, like, oh, that, that thing's so alien, I couldn't have come from that. I, I kind of understand – maybe but to me it's it's a much more beautiful story that it's all you know interconnected and that that we all have have these shared commonalities yes and that has been a quest and i hope uh, well in my um communicating of Mm. nature Mm. is that i just want everyone to feel tenderness and respect for the wonders of nature and therefore vote more wisely 100 percent. you know yeah 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 care well, and, and, and just it's in, all we've got. It's all we've got. I mean, are you really going to live on Mars? Get real. I can't get my head around, you know, whatever the most inhospitable place on Earth is, is still infinitely more hospitable than any region of Mars. It's just such a, I don't know, it's such a nine-year-old nonsense fantasy, you know? Let's not fix the computer, it's going to blast off to Mars. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, it's tiresome. It really is. Mm. So, there you go. Okay. Um, Deuterous stones or stones. (laughs) The early jungles filled with such creatures were still only a few inches high. No more than a thick, moist carpet draping the sand spits and boulders. For plants like mosses and liverworts were still the only ones that existed on land. Back to what he's talking about. Mm. He's referring to uh, tracheids. Sorry, what are, tra- what are yeah. tracheids? So earlier on we talked about non-vascular plants. Yep. So early plants, mosses, liverworts, hornworts, don't have any tubes inside them carrying around their water, nutrients, hormones, whatever. Right. Whereas these very early ferns that he's got examples of from the hillside in Wales, I think, yep. uh, they had very primitive tracheids. Are these equivalent to like veins or exactly. vessels? Yes, yeah. okay. yes. And those vessels have become very much supported by other structures, wood. So lignin is around sure. them, making them big and strong, and that's wood. Basically, what's the difference between an animal cell and a plant cell? Um, well, structurally, there's a big difference. So animals, for the most part, are mushy, mm. and that's because our cell walls, our cells do not have a wall. Plants have a cell wall. So the reason we're mushy is because we have a cell membrane. Yeah, and and, and, and plants together. have a rigid yeah. wall. Yeah, they've got walls. Extraordinarily, and perhaps we didn't know this at the time, all of the diversity of plant life, plant life you see around, is made up of about 
12 to 16, I can't remember the exact number, mm. different cell types. Now, really? think about your body. Yeah. Many more different cell types in animals. We're much more differentiated than plants. So like neurons, blood cells, Absolutely. leukocytes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but a plant is const- like all the crazy diversity of plants and yeah. that's all from about, you know, 15 different types of cell. Wow. That's how versatile they are. Amazing. They're like, yep, I can grow into a eucalypt or I could be a cactus or I could be a bryophyte and mm. I've only got these this handful of cell types. Right. Mm. Do you think there's a plant consciousness? Oh, oh, well, they can communicate. Yeah. So that's that's known now. Like they'll release chemicals to one another. Consciousness, look, I don't even know what that is. Mm. What's happening when we're sleeping? Are we conscious? I don't know. No. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I don't know, Ben. Do, do, like when you say that, can- I feel. I mean, there's that sense when you're in the forest or at the seaside mm. or something. Like if you you can you feel relaxed by that environment. And there's a lot of recent work looking to improve nature mm. um, nature exposure opportunities for mm. people living in urban environments because mm. it's so good for our mental well being. Yeah. Um, and I'm no expert regarding that recent work that's gone on, mm. um, but. There, there is a strong evidence that it's important for us to be with nature. Now, what is what are we receiving? You mm. know, we are a receiver of the world around us. We've got yeah. these elaborate senses yeah. that are attuned to the environments that we evolved in. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess there's they're saying something to us, the plants. I don't know what. I think, you know, tree consciousness or tree communication or whatever you want to call it is something that I think most people would dismiss as hippy-dippy Kind of like in the tree hugging bullshit. So that's it is, but it is real, right? Uh, well, plants and trees are plants yeah. are capable of making a whole range of sort of extra chemicals. So you know they have, they have their chemicals that they use to um, actuate normal life stage stuff like yep. reproduction, growth, whatever. But mm. then they have this other whole suite of chemicals mm-hmm. which they use to protect themselves from their natural enemies. That's one of the terms in uh, life history biology which I absolutely hate, yeah. natural enemies. Yeah. Anyway, so your natural enemies. Wait, why do you, uh, why do you hate it? Because it's a, it because it's a so judgment weird. call? I don't know. It just sounds Enemy. weird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. yeah, maybe that's why. Yeah. Um, thank you. You're helping me understand <laughs> myself. So um, they produce things like secondary uh, metabolites or whatever, which we know about as human beings, beans, because that's what makes tea yummy and coffee yummy and stuff. It's all these extra chemicals. And they're often for um, preventing predation, so to stop a browser or whatever. Uh When trees are browsed by... They're natural, natural enemies. <laughs> natural enemies. <laughs> I think it just sounds ridiculously quaint. Yeah. Enemies. Anyway, um, they will release an extra set of chemicals, which the other trees receive mm. and respond to. Mm. And what they can do is receive these chemicals and up their secondary metabolite loadings. Wow. So they can make themselves more um, unpalatable because there's a predator out there. So so Joe Bloggs down the road is getting nibbled. I don't want to get nibbled. Oh, dear, I can sense that he's getting nibbled. Well, not he, but yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah, they yeah. up their secondary metabolites to the distastefulness. But what what is the advantage of a tree alerting its fellow trees to mm. like that? I mean, you know, we talk about consciousness or – at least community or an idea of community, what is the net benefit for the individual in alerting its fellows that, I mean, wouldn't it be more advantageous to not let 
the fellows know yeah. that there's these predators around so, so that the predators move on. It was very trendy until relatively recently to study competition in, in ecology mm. and competition was a strong paradigm that we would use to analyse things and understand patterns of um, b- behaviour, I guess, in yep. nature. Yep. And it, for a long time it was like conspecific, so same species, compete against one another and it's a great competition and the fittest survives. <laughs> but you need like to mate with. Of course. So I guess as long as there's no intense competition for mm. the resources locally, then you do benefit from protecting your fellow species wow. or individual because you want to mate with them. Yeah. You might want well, – I mean I'm anthropomorphising now, but you might want your offspring to have the opportunity to mate into the future. Wow. Maybe trees have a better sense of the temporal landscape than we do. Anyway. Is, is there a part of your like – more kind of uh, hippy-dippy brain that thinks that trees are kind of um, uh, having an experience of time or an experience of themselves. I don't – oh, gosh. You think very differently to me. I've never that's thought about that. That's because I'm not a scientist. That. Um, <laughs> that's because that's I've been raised on fairy tales. And yeah. Um, <laughs> hmm, interesting. Are the trees talking to each other? Yeah. Are the uh, knotholes mouths? So it has occurred to me that my creativity has been – forced, funneled into another trajectory by my training. Yeah. So maybe once I would have thought crazy things, like crazy shit like that. <laughs> but now I'm way too sensible. Um, gosh. I tell you what, this podcast has definitely put to bed a lot of my um, more fanciful notions. We're learning so much about Oh, I've you. asked questions where I've been met with, no. <laughs> I, I just think we can't, at this point, we can't measure that, so I can't speak on it. I just don't know. I, I don't know. That's I mean, a sensible they measure answer. time within themselves with their tree rings. Yeah, of course. But whether they know they're doing it, they don't have anything analogous to an animal, mm. to a nerve. Mm. So, you know, a mind requires nerves. Yeah. Um, they might have a whole different method within their 15 cell types <laughs> that allows them to have a consciousness. But yeah. I'm so sorry, Ben. I don't know. No, please. I'd rather that than some made up answer. I can't. I don't know. I think, you know, we talked before about anthropomorphization with animals. And I think what, what I was saying about uh, recognizing innate things within animals, I think that's true. I think that I do anthropomorphize plants in a way that is probably false. Like it's difficult when you, especially when you, not, not so much in this documentary, but later on in the secret life of plants, they're showing sped up footage of vines, you know, waving around, trying to find an anchor point. And it's really hard not to project a, a, a an intense purpose onto that. And there is, but it doesn't mean it's an, a conscious purpose. It's just a thing waving around looking for an anchor point. It's not necessarily a hand clasping for something. I don't think they're in, inanimate fully. Yeah, well, I, I think it's useful to anthropomorphize them. One of the issues that we have, and it does even come across in lovely David's film, is that we see plants as the backdrop to the animal kingdom. Yep. And that's really unfortunate because, you know, it's a bit trite, but without plants we wouldn't be here. Like mm. they're ge- literally taking energy mm. from the sun mm. and turning it into sugar. Like yeah. that's ex- uh, extraordinary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it, there's this concept called the green curtain. Mm. So most people without training in botany or plant diversity, they step out and they just, everything is green. It's a plant. Yeah. And it's, it comes across in children's books. So I'm reading a lot of children's mm, books now and it's mm. like, here's a lovely orange tiger and the book's about the tiger, but there's all this wonderful 
yep. greenness in the background, yep. which gets no focus. And I have to actually force myself to say, oh, look, Douglas, there's a flower. Oh, yeah, it's a yeah, flower yeah. drawn in the background. Yep. So it's a mission now for botanists to uh, draw back the green curtain mm. and highlight the diversity. And I think if anthropomorphizing them, as David does in his recent work and you are prone to, mm. if that's going to work, then why not? I don't mind anthropomorphizing them yeah. and their motile sperm. <laughs> as long as they don't come swimming on me, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> but they can be vicious. I mean, one, the most, one of the most venomous plants in the world, Dendrocnides morioides, which I've had the pleasure of being stung by, yeah. grows here in Australia. Like why is that not as famous as the funnel web? Like that thing is what does disastrous. It, do? it has silica-like spines that uh. contain a neurotoxin, uh. you know, so that's... In t- that's something engaging with nerves. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and it stinks you and it hurts like hell. Oh, yeah. Like it's, it's like being splashed with acid. And really? it lasts for months and months and to get the spines out you need gaffer tape and God knows what else. And, yeah, so there's, they're, yeah. they're really interesting plants. Yeah, yeah. I mean for, for, from my experience with them they definitely, uh, some kind of uh, ascribing some kind of personality or soul or whatever to them has definitely. You and your soul. I know. Oh. Uh, too many drugs. Um, See, no drugs. Yeah. This is drugs versus none. <laughs> the tree's feeling things. But I'm re- I remember the first experience I had with a tree where I was like, it's alive. There's this um, – Morton Bay fig tree in Camperdown Cemetery near where I live. And even if you were a person who ascribed to the Green Curtain, you couldn't see this tree and not be floored. It is outstanding. It's, it's, it's like the platonic ideal of an old grandmother tree. You know, it's got the, the, the beautiful trunk and then it, it splits off into probably 12 different branches and each branch is the width of the trunk of an ordinary tree. It's just huge. Must be hundreds of years old. And one night, many, many years ago, I was having a terrible time and I found myself kind of curled up in the roots of this tree. And again, I'm sure it's all projection, but I felt so nurtured and taken care of by this tree and I now have maybe a 25-year-old relationship with this tree and Mm. every time I sit with it. You have a cuddle. I feel as though it's an animal. Like I feel like I would hanging out with a dog or an elephant. Yeah, there's a presence. There is a presence to it. Well, it's alive, of course. Yeah, yeah. And look, and and, and by no means do I think that when I arrive, the trees, they're going, oh, good, Ben's here. Like I know that the tree is completely (laughs) indifferent to me. You know, as as it's indifferent to the dog taking a piss on this part of it or the ants crawling up the trunk or whatever it is. But as you say, if me ascribing this kind of personality to it or whatever to it helps me feel a connection to it, yeah, what is the harm? Well, I mean, I am not – I'm so sorry I'm going to bring this up, but are there not multiple dimensions? We've evolved the senses that allow us to see, you know, we hear, we interact with what we need to interact with to continue to survive as a species. Now, that doesn't mean that we are completely unable to sense other stuff that's out there. So at some level there's something going on where you're sensing that. I mean, I don't think it's nuts. No, I I don't feel that. I feel that with plants. I don't, and I love gardening. I love putting your little roots in the garden (laughs) and, oh, you're going to grow, you know, like that's a real thing. And I don't get that with rocks. No. And I, you know, it's not made up. You didn't. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a very ancient, it's it's you know, animism. It's a very ancient kind of belief system or feeling that, Mm. 
or at least an acknowledgement that this isn't just some static mm. bit of wood. Yeah, good. It lives good. and it's and within itself is an ecosystem. I hope everyone now goes and sits in the little No, stay cradle. away from that tree. That's my tree. Oh. Go find your own I'm tree. Already, I'm already <laughs> – I'm racking my mind. I'm like, which corner of the park is he talking about? It's in the cemetery. It's a giant Morton Bay fig. Oh, Morton Bay. But, yeah, I think that people – because I know a lot of people that roll their eyes at that kind of, you know, oh. there's probably people listening to this right now going, you, you, you. I don't think so. Uh, maybe. But I think that <sighs> I feel bad for them. Like I feel, I feel bad for people that could go into the bush and not feel like a sense of like, oh, this is. And, and when I say consciousness, I'm not saying that they're sitting there going, I am a tree. Yeah, it's the closest word we have yeah. available uh, yeah. But, like, I, I guess Vibe. is it an experience of life? Like, are they having an experience of life? Just a, a very, obviously, very slow motion yeah. experience. I don't know. I um, guess they are. They're, they're certainly interacting with their environment as yeah. we are, but with how that manifests, um, I don't think it's in thought like ours. No, not at all. But I, I don't know, so I can't speak tree. I mean, who's to say that thought is even the greatest mode of being? Sometimes it's well, a I don't know because I didn't do what you did in your twenties. He didn't talk about fungi. I know, and we, I want to get to fungi. We got left. I know, we've got to get to fungi in a big way because I want to know no about footage. the mycelium. He didn't have footage. Well, and <gasps> did, would they have known about the mycelium then? I think so. They might not have fully understood its, its importance to the diversification of plants. God, look at you, Ben, well-researched. Oh, no, I've been reading a, a book about – I saw a, a documentary called Fantastic Fungi which educated me about the mycelium. You know, when they cut open cadavers uh, and look in the brain, uh, guess what's in there? Fungi. Mycelium. Re- what? I think there's hyphae, fungal hyphae in old people's brains. Whoa. Mm. What? As there's neural degeneration, the fungi come um, in to pick up the slack? That's one idea. But they've done <laughs> studies on Alzheimer's um, brains versus healthy brains and there's the equivalent amount of this stuff in there. So we've got to go back. Whether that's post-death or not, I'm not sure. We got to go back for the for the listener who might not know what the mycelium is. How would you how would you describe the mycelium? Oh well, it's a thread like structure that yeah. exists in the matrix of the soil or whatever, possibly the brain, yeah. and is all connected and is part of the fungus. Mm. And then when the fungus wants to reproduce, it produces, let's say, a mushroom. Yeah. So the mushroom will grow from the network of mycelia. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And then, and then the spore mus- mushroom spores will land mm-hmm. the dust that comes out of a mushroom and form a new set of you know mycelia. So <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard it described as the wood wide web. Oh, cool! So it's kind of like the it eats stuff, yeah. And is it true that basic like so you go into a patch of forest? And all of the trees are interconnected underground by this massive network of fungal threads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, in fact, for some plants, they are 100% necessary for the uptake of certain nutrients. Wow. 
And in a whole group of plants, the orchids, fungi is required to facilitate germination of the seeds. So orchids don't even have, like, you know when you have a bean, you've got a bean in front of you and yeah. there's all that, like, foody yumminess. Yeah. I uh, can't quite remember what that's called, but the juicy <laughs> the food part, yumminess. The food yumminess. <laughs> well, that's absent in orchid seeds. They just have a tiny little non-nutritive seed that okay. lands yep. somewhere, like goes off like dust, uh-huh. and it needs the fungus to come and hang out with it to feed it. And so we wouldn't have orchids if it weren't for fungus. What is fungus? Because it's not quite an animal, not quite a plant, yeah, right? I don't know. I don't think we really know. Like it's just its own kingdom of, of living thing. They have wow. – um, they're interesting because they – I think this is correct about fungus. They can create their own food, so autotroph, uh, yeah, and they have a cell wall, whereas all the other things – yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Mm. Oh, no, they have chitin in them. Yeah, they're crazy. They're weird. They're their own Yeah. And so basically plants are in a symbiotic relationship with fungi all the time or is just in- Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we know that. Yeah. Back to my misspent youth, I've always had this fascination- I'm learning a lot about you. Well, this fascination with fungi of like, you know, what the hell is going on? You're a fun guy. Hey, fun guy. Mm. (laughs) Pundemonium. You're very generous. (laughs) Um, But when I found out that, I mean, this doc- it's a very naff documentary. It's very informative. The, the format is very new agey and almost like a cult induction video. Oh. But they were getting into some crazy stuff in this about fungi being able to break down plastics and, you know, talking about how that could be a really good way to get rid of all the, um, you know, the trash islands yeah. in the ocean, just mm. dump a bunch of fungi in there. Mm. But it was really the mycelium that – like they were telling stories in it about um, – you know, trees being attacked by certain um, species of wood lice and the mycelium. A crustacean. A crustacean. And the mycelium detecting it and releasing toxins to kill the wood lice that are attacking its kind of partner tree. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, I think it's just bizarre when we start kind of learning more and you realise like, that whole circle of life, we're all connected thing. It yep. just becomes more and more yes. a I truth. Get, yes, and I got very frustrated when I went to see that film with the blue people. Oh, and, Avatar? Yes, and, oh. the, and the guy, um, I can't remember the director's name, but, you know, he got so applauded for creating this amazing world and now we're going to love nature. And I'm like, well, really, that we already live on that planet. Like, yeah. Do we need to have Sigourney Weaver shepherding us into this alternate reality. Of course. Mm. And, you know, oh, it's so pro-environmental, really. I can guarantee about 10% of every Pacific Island garbage patch is full of (laughs) Avatar merchandise. Like, it's, you know what I mean? It's like this kind of, it's that weird human, it's come up a lot uh, in these conversations for this podcast, but that weird human. Stuck-up scientists. Well, no, stuck-up scientists are great. Uh, Stuck-up filmmakers and the, um, and just just that, that human need to, Obviously connect with nature but doing it in this strange abstract way Round where it's like through way. fiction mm. or through fantasy. Or through four-wheel driving. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with four-wheel driving. <laughs> Any final thoughts on plants or David? If we're thinking about how David might have told this story differently today Mm. versus in 1979, Mm -hmm. he would have been thrilled to have access to molecular genetics. And I think that would have helped him tell a a much more complete story. But for its time, 
yeah, I think it's a, a very useful tool. Yeah. But it's a critical time yeah. for fact versus elaboration of the truth. Yeah. I think that David would be more careful in his uh, mm. flagging of conjecture versus this is what we know. Yeah, and I know right. he would have done that now. If Absolutely. He, was making, well, he, do, he does do it now. Yeah. 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 Um, so it does risk simplifying things terribly, this. this yeah. But maybe that doesn't matter because it's all about getting people to want to go and nestle yeah. under a Morton Bay feet. <laughs> that soothes them sense. through the night. <laughs> yeah. I was going to write to David and wish him a happy 80th birthday, but I think that was a decade ago. <laughs> so I've still not done it and luckily he is alive. I have a friend that's had dinner with him a few times. Mm, I've met some crew that have filmed with him. What do they say about him? That he's exceptional and yeah. that he can deliver an immaculate piece to camera with no rehearsal about almost anything. Oh. Yes, in, the, his, in his um, crouched position, you know, the, the famous crouch that we all now emulate. Oh, the friend of mine that has uh, met him a few times has met all the famous people. Ooh, oh, and, I feel like, oh, and says two that David is. <laughs> oh, and reflected says that, <laughs> fame. I'm hungry for Vicarious it. fame. Mm. Um, and says that David is the best of them all. Okay. Anyway, I was, because, you know. What about Brian Cox? Oh, uh, mm, I want a full report. I would actually. Well, Brian, I think Brian Cox is the um, successor. I think David's named him as is his. Is that right? uh, Okay, well, that doesn't surprise me. The, the torch passes to you when yeah. I go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I asked, I asked my friend, like, uh, you know, is and there's always that tension of like, God, don't say that he's an asshole. <laughs> uh, and he's like, mate, he's everything you want him to be. Yeah, yeah. Oh, grandpa. Grandpa, read me a bedtime story. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me everything's going to be okay. Oh, he's it's going not to at be the fine. moment. No, he's not saying that. <sighs> well, all right. Um, I'm happy to have met you <laughs> because it's you. rare to meet someone that is engaged in the media who isn't like, look at me. Yeah, I don't no. look what I'm doing. No, no, Sans pants. No, I've got a real. I've got a distaste. <laughs> I get a lot of shit in the comedy world because I'm the only comedian that when the audience starts clapping, I like, shut up, don't stop laughing. Oh, well, it's like I, getting I, I married. Like, a, like, why would you want to do that with everyone staring at you? And Tell oh. me about it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lindsay Gray, thank you. You're welcome, Ben. <laughs> Thanks again to Dr. Lindsay Gray for an excellent conversation and to Sean Allen for his beautiful music and sound effects. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 